Speaker, I'm really pleased to announce, to announce Michael Yin, who's a junior faculty member in our, our Division of Infectious Diseases at Columbia, who's become our resident endocrinologist uh, and go-to person for metabolic complications, particularly vitamin D and bone. And these are vexing issues for the clinicians to measure, not to measure, what does it all mean? And Mike is going to unravel that for us. Mike? Thanks. Scott, two advances. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me here. The, uh, we'll start off with a case, switching gears, and this is a case of a 55-year-old uh, African-American woman. She's on tenofovir FTC and efavirenz for five years with a CD4 count of 350. Her viral load is undetectable. She's a smoker and drinks three beers a day, and she's complaining of three months of bone pain. It started off in the lower extremities, but now is in her spine and in her ribs. The pain is diffuse, and it's tender to palpation over the ribs and the long bones and of her arms and legs. She also has proximal upper and lower extremity strength weakness, um, and her reflexes are intact, and she has some difficulty in your office rising up from a chair. So what tests would you order now? A thyroid function test, a workup for metastatic cancer, 25-hydroxyvitamin D levels, calcium, uh, PTH, and serum phosphate levels, or get a bone density test? No, that was good. Okay. So the um, symptoms that she's having of uh, bony pain and muscle weakness uh, really make you think of osteomalacia. And so the laboratory tests that you're concerned about are vitamin D levels as by 25 OHD levels in the sera, uh, parathyroid hormone, and serum phosphate. And you can see here that her 25 OHD levels are very low, uh, four nanograms per ml. Her parathyroid hormone as a secondary response to the low vitamin D is elevated, and her uh, serum phosphate is normal, uh, and her bone-specific alkaline phosphatase is also elevated as, a, uh, as an expression of osteoblast activity trying to lay down bone. Uh, and the calcium is also slightly low. So osteomalacia as uh, a clinical syndrome causes bony pain, muscle weakness, and proximal uh, muscle weakness specifically, uh, and can result in spontaneous fractures. It results from inadequate mineralization of the osteoid. The osteoid is the collagen that's laid down by osteoblasts. Um, and it's due to prolonged and severe vitamin D deficiency, very low uh, calcium intake, or hypophosphatemia. Um, the low calcium intake is actually quite important because even, as you've seen in some of your patients, who, people who have low vitamin D levels in the range of 4 nanograms per ml, but they don't have osteomalacia, as long as you have an adequate intake of calcium, you can still mineralize your bone. Um, in this particular case, uh, the issue of her being on efavirenz also comes into play because there are some metabolism issues with efavirenz and 25-OHD, which we'll talk about. And hypophosphatemia is, of course, important in uh, tenofovir use. So that was a, a case of severe vitamin D deficiency with clear clinical uh, impact. Uh, however, what we're really going to talk about today is the syndrome of vitamin D deficiency that's asymptomatic, which uh, we all deal with. So I'll give an, an overview of vitamin D metabolism. I'll go over some of the data, uh, observational and clinical trials data, about vitamin D specifically in the HIV population. 
And I'll try to address some of these vexing questions that we encounter as clinicians. Should I screen for vitamin D deficiency? What levels should I target? And how much D should I give? So vitamin D is um, synthesized in the epidermis with exposure to UVB light uh, in the form of cholecalciferol, or vitamin D3. You can also get cholecalciferol from your diet from animal sources, and ergocalciferol, vitamin D2, from plant sources. Uh, those are inert, and they have a short half-life, and they're converted in the liver with a 25-hydroxylase to 25-OHD, 25-hydroxyvitamin D, which is also known as calcidiol. This is the stable form of vitamin D, and it complexes with vitamin D binding protein and albumin, and is transported to the target tissues. Uh, it's inert, so it has to be converted by the 1-alpha-hydroxylase, which is predominantly in the kidney, to 125-OHD, or calcitriol, and this is the active form of vitamin D. Aside from the kidneys, 1-alpha-hydroxylase uh, is also present in macrophages and monocytes, so there's also conversion at those in those cells, and in those cases, vitamin D actually acts in an autocrine or a paracrine fashion whereas the 125-hydroxy uh, vitamin D that's generated by the kidneys is in the circulation but for uh, a brief period. And that, we think, is sort of the endocrine function of that particular compound. So what does vitamin D do? The classic uh, purpose of vitamin D is for calcium and phosphate homeostasis. Um, it increases intestinal absorption of calcium, and in this, it interacts uh, tightly with PTH and FGF23, and vitamin D also has direct effects on bone cells. It also has a well-worked-out immunomodulatory effects. Uh, as far as innate immunity, it increases cathelicidin gene expression in macrophages, and this, is, uh, this has been shown to be bactericidal and help with antimicrobial, uh, antimycobacterial uh, activity as well. As far as adaptive immunity, vitamin D uh, predominantly targets T cells. And in general, it seems to downregulate activation and recruitment of Th1 and Th17 cells and polarizes to a more Th2 and Treg phenotypes. But the vitamin D receptor is almost in every tissue. And so there are many, many other uh, purported uh, um, uh, activity of vitamin D. So, Prevention of falls and fractures has been the most well-studied. And the mechanism there is that vitamin D is thought to increase bone strength and improve muscle function, so prevention of falls. From observational studies, we've seen that vitamin D deficiency, this is in the general population, is associated with fractures and falls in the elderly. And there have been many studies, uh, randomized clinical trials of vitamin D and calcium supplementation in the elderly to prevent falls and fractures. And from a meta-analysis, uh, there seems to be some benefit, but it's really restricted to elderly people and also always with calcium. As far as diabetes and obesity, uh, vitamin D deficiency is associated with obesity and uh, diabetes and the metabolic syndrome. In vitro studies suggest that vitamin D can decrease lipogenesis and increase lipolysis in adipocytes. But the one large randomized clinical trial that looked at this, WHI, with a lowish dose of vitamin D of 400 international units a day did not show any benefit as far as uh, prevention of diabetes. For cancer, vitamin D deficiency has been associated epidemiologically with colorectal cancer, less so for breast and prostate. In vitro, it has anti-inflammatory and pro-apoptotic and angiogenic um, 
um, results, but from limited randomized clinical trials, no benefit has been seen as far as prevention of cancer. Similarly, with cardiovascular disease, vitamin deficiency has been associated with increased cardiovascular disease, um, but from the very limited randomized clinical trials, there's been no consistent benefit. From the infectious and immune side, uh, TB has been the most well-studied. And as I mentioned, there have been a lot of in vitro studies looking at this mechanism of cathelicidin gene expression, uh, specifically for mycobacterial killing. And from observational studies, there have been a lot of data showing that vitamin D deficiency is associated with increased TB incidence. And there have been three um, randomized clinical trials now using vitamin D as an adjunct to TB treatment. Uh, and in one of these, it decreased time to sputum negativity, but not in the others. Hepatitis C mono-infection is another area which this has been looked at. There has been uh, demonstrated from observational studies some correlation between 25 OHD and sustained biologic response in patients who are treated with uh, interferon and ribavirin-based regimens. Um, in vitro, it's been shown, vitamin D has been shown to synergize with interferon to inhibit HCV replication and possibly decrease fibrosis. And there have been two published studies, uh, one in genotype 1 and one in genotype 2-3, looking at a supplementation of 2,000 international units a day, and they've demonstrated improvements in SVR and HCV monotherapy. So where do we get these uh, definitions of the levels that are sufficient or insufficient? Currently, the accepted definition is that um, you are deficient if your vitamin D is less than 20 nanograms per ml, and that's measuring 25-hydroxy vitamin D. Um, and severe deficiency is when you have levels that are less than 10 nanograms per ml. Insufficiency is classified as having levels between 20 and 30 nanograms per ml, and above 30 is considered normal. Now, there's been a lot of debate about where this data comes from, and mostly it's driven by two studies that I'll show you. Uh, one is by Michael Hollick. This is in 2005, where he did an observational study of 1,300 postmenopausal, uh, predominantly Caucasian women living in the Northeast. Uh, the median age was 70. And here, he plotted the parathyroid uh, hormone levels. Uh, versus serum 25 OHD levels and found that the, this inflection point, at which point uh, higher levels of 25 OHD did not lower parathyroid hormone, uh, was around 30. So this suggests that as a physiological response, PTH doesn't get any lower uh, after a vitamin D level reaches about 30 nanograms per ml by the 25 OHD assay. Uh, another study that's often discussed is this meta-analysis by Bischoff-Ferrari and he assembled all of the clinical trials for falls and fracture and all the observational data uh, looking at other endpoints such as cardiovascular disease, mortality, colorectal cancer, hypertension, um, and plotted their relative risk of having those outcomes by 25 OHD levels and extrapolated the lines. And you can see that it crosses um, uh, the relative risk of one for all these studies after extrapolating the data at around 30 to 44 nanograms per ml. So uh, this would suggest that the overall benefit uh, for having a pre prevention of risks such as uh, uh, cardiovascular disease, colorectal disease, and as well as the better data from musculoskeletal uh, outcomes 
is when the level is above 30. So potentially, there are a lot of benefits for optimizing vitamin D status in HIV patients. There may be improvements in innate immunity, modulation of co-infections, specifically hep C and TB, modulation of immune response with iris. There's modulation of chronic inflammatory responses and maybe decreasing uh, events of non-AIDS events, such as uh, osteoporosis fractures, falls and frailty, cardiovascular, diabetes, and malignancies that we're all concerned about now. Now, we have, in New York City, been very, very interested in vitamin D as well. There have been over 50 published studies looking at vitamin D levels in various subpopulations. We have four of them here from um, big New York centers. And we've shown that uh, in, in our New York HIV-infected population, uh, vitamin D insufficiency and deficiency, classified as under 30 nanograms per ml, is quite prevalent. Uh, approximately 80% of our uh, cohorts are, are below normal. But in comparison to HIV-negative um, individuals recruited from the same demographic area of the same age and ethnicity, uh, there are four studies out there that look at HIV positive and HIV negative, and as you can see, there's actually no difference in prevalence of vitamin D deficiency among these two groups, suggesting that vitamin D deficiency is quite prevalent just among the general population that we take care of, whether they're HIV infected or not. Now, one emerging piece of evidence that um, does seem to be true is that certain antiretrovirals affect vitamin D metabolism. And it's, very, it's becoming increasingly clear for Favrins. Uh, this study on the left that I'm showing is a longitudinal study by Tom Brown, which showed that initiation of antiretrovirals within a Favrins-containing regimen uh, lowered 25 OHG levels by a mean of 5 nanograms per ml by about six months and remained low by 12 months as compared to initiation of a non-efavirenz-containing regimen. Uh, further recent data that I'm showing on the right uh, shows that when you switch from efavirenz to atazanavir, you get an increase in 25 OHD levels. When comparing efavirenz and rilpivirine-containing regimens, efavirenz uh, resulted in a 6 nanogram per ml decrease in 25 OHD, whereas rilpivirine did not. And then with nevirapine, there's been no change in 25-OHD levels over a three-year period in one longitudinal study. So it seems like it's quite specific to efavirenz. And the putative mechanism is that efavirenz induces the 24-hydroxylase, which is a CYP24 enzyme. And that um, converts 125-OHD, the active form of vitamin D, to an inactive metabolite called calcitroic acid. And it also does the same for 25-OHD, calcidiol. The protease inhibitors in in vitro studies also have an effect on 1-alpha-hydroxylase, which I've depicted here, um, and it inhibits 1-alpha-hydroxylase, which presumably could decrease the amount of active vitamin D that's made in uh, patients who are on protease inhibitors. However, in clinical studies that look at 125-OHD levels, this has not been a consistent finding, although there are some problems with that. As I've mentioned before, 125 is not a very stable compound to measure. Tenofovir itself doesn't have a, has a, ha, does not have a direct effect on vitamin D metabolism. However, it does cause hypophosphatemia uh, by way of proximal renal tubular dysfunction and phosphate leak through the renal tubules. When your phosphate is low, um, low phosphate in the serum will induce an increase in 1-alpha-hydroxylase activity. 
This is because 125-OHD, the active form of vitamin D, is necessary for your intestines to resorb phosphate. So it's plausible that in patients who are on tenofovir and have low 25-OHD, low um, parent 25-OHD uh, vitamin D stores, that you'll get a higher propensity to get both hypophosphatemia and clinical manifestations of vitamin D deficiencies such as osteomalacia. Okay, so what's the data? Uh, we've shown all of this, uh, all these wonderful things about what vitamin D can do. Um, what do we see in HIV patients? Um, first, with the bone, uh, the musculoskeletal effects of vitamin D have been worked out much better than any of the other effects. Um, and I'm depicting here that you know, even bone and fractures is, is a very complicated process among HIV patients, and there are factors from the host both the virus and the antiretrovirals that affect uh, both BMD and fracture incidence. And most of the studies that have looked at bone density in HIV have not included 25-OHD measurements routinely. Uh, but in those that have, there hasn't been a consistent finding that low vitamin D levels explain the difference in bone density that we see between HIV-infected and HIV-uninfected individuals in these cohorts. So from our observational data uh, among HIV patients, vitamin D deficiency does not seem to be a big uh, explainer of the uh, difference that we see in both bone loss and fracture. How about uh, other potential um, outcomes that are affected by vitamin D? Using carotid intima media thickness as a surrogate for cardiovascular disease, this study by Andy Choi uh, stratified their cohort um, in terms of whether they had 25 OHD levels were greater than 30 or in this insufficient range of between 15 to 30 and less than um, 15 nanograms and found that the, that the, the adjusted mean carotid intima media thickness was greater in the uh, vitamin D deficient group, that is the group with less than 15 nanograms per ml. Uh, and this, group was this study was adjusted for cardiovascular risk factors as well as antiretrovirals. Um, so at least some suggestive data from observational, uh, a cross-sectional observational study that vitamin D may be associated with media thickness in HIV patients. This is also another recent study looking at the association of baseline vitamin D levels and mortality in this Tanzani Tanzanian uh, cohort of adults beginning antiretrovirals. They found that 44% of this cohort had vitamin D levels less than 20, and the, uh, the relative risk of mortality was two times higher for those who had a baseline level of 25 OHC less than 20 nanograms as compared to uh, those with either between 20 and 30 insufficiency or greater than 30 sufficiency. Uh, interestingly, there was no difference between groups in their, as far as the bivitamin D levels in CD4 reconstitution after antiretroviral therapy. A similar analysis was done using the larger Uracida cohort, and you can see here the same results. Uh, those with vitamin D, D deficiency, and this they defined by their tertiles. So it's less than 12 nanograms per ml in that top thin line, um, had higher uh, uh, proportion with, uh, with uh, incidence of AIDS, development of AIDS, mortality, 
and non-AIDS events as compared to those with uh, vitamin D levels greater than 12 nanograms per ml. But as is the problem with all observational studies, you don't know whether the vitamin D is in the line of causality or whether it's just associated with better overall health, uh, other disease entity uh, processes, or behaviors that are going to improve your outcome. So what's the data from randomized clinical trials that we have? Well, there have been six studies now looking at uh, uh, treatment of alendronate as compared to uh, placebo plus vitamin D and calcium in patients uh, who are HIV infected on antiretrovirals with low bone density. And this is a study by Grace McComsey, the ACTG 5163. Um, and I'm showing you the changes in lumbar spine uh, after initiation of either um, alendronate plus vitamin D and calcium in the orange and vitamin D and calcium in the blue. And you can see that with um, uh, over a period of, two, uh, of a year, there is about a 1% increase in the bone density uh, at the lumbar spine. And these patients entered the study because they had a lumbar spine T-score less than negative 1.5, so a little bit low, uh, not in the osteoporotic range, but low. Um, and these results are pretty consistent for all the uh, treatment studies in HIV patients for whom the entry criteria included a bone density that was low. Another recent study by uh, Steve Arpati looked at the effect of vitamin D supplementation in perinatally infected HIV-infected children on ART. Here, there was no BMD entry criteria, and they excluded patients who had 25 OHD levels that were below 12. They treated them with 100,000 international units of D3 every other month uh, for two years. And I'm depicting the change in vitamin D levels in, in the figure, and you can see that the group that received the vitamin D therapy had uh, a reasonable rise in their D, but there was no change in their BMD. So this suggests that um, the only benefit that you get with vitamin D supplementation in HIV-infected populations on antiretrovirals are those who have low bone density to begin with. Um, Another study that was recently published by Peter Havens, and this is the ATN-063 study, looked at it in another way. They didn't have bone densities either. Uh, they used bone turnover markers as one of their outcomes. And here they were specifically looking at uh, children who were on either tenofovir-containing or non-tenofovir-containing regimens. And you can see in the top panel, B and C, that in patients who are on vitamin, I'm sorry, in patients who are on tenofovir, whether they were vitamin D insufficient, panel B, or vitamin D sufficient in panel uh, C, their PTH levels actually came down with vitamin D therapy. Whereas in the bottom two panels, uh, those are patients who are not on tenofovir, their PTH levels didn't change at all. This is only a three-month study, but they showed that with concomitant vitamin D uh, supplementation, in patients who are on tenofovir-based regimens, that PTH was lowered, suggesting that vitamin D was correcting some um, uh, dysfunction in calcium homeostasis that uh, included PTH um, in patients who are uh, on tenofovir. But the exact mechanism of this is not really clear because it happened both in patients who are vitamin D insufficient and those who are vitamin D sufficient. 
the other important factor is that this did not change. Even though it lowered the PTH, it did not change the bone turnover markers, suggesting that um, even you know, normalizing some of this calcium homeostasis didn't necessarily uh, have an impact on bone. Now, switching to cardiovascular surrogates, uh, here's a recently published study from Grace McConzie and uh, her group looking at flow-mediated brachial artery dilatation as a surrogate for cardiovascular disease. And here, they gave 45 uh, adults on stable ART, 4,000 internationals of D3 versus placebo for 12 weeks and measured change in FMD. And you can see on the left that there was a modest increase of about five nanograms per ml in uh, 25 OHD levels in the group that received the vitamin D therapy. But there was no difference between groups in FMD change, nor in levels of the adhesin molecules, uh, ICAM and VCAM, uh, TNF-alpha levels, CRP, IL-6 D-dimers, and fibrinogen, which are all markers that are associated with cardiovascular disease. So, um, the, in general, the randomized clinical trials have been rather disappointing. The most um, definitive results are that vitamin D will increase bone density a little, 1%, uh, in patients who have low bone density. Um, but the other um, uh, outcomes have not clearly been demonstrated. So given all this, uh, should I be screening for vitamin D? Um, just ask you, the audience, do you routinely uh, screen, and we define routinely as greater than 90% of your patients, uh, for 25 OHD levels. So half, yes, half no, but the barlets are strange as before. Um, okay, so what are the pros and cons? Uh, from the pros, as we looked at, there are potential, potential benefits for optimization of skeletal, metabolic, immunologic parameters. And in comparison to other things, vitamin D is uh, of low toxicity. On the con side, um, the proven benefit, as I've uh, demonstrated, is only for elderly folks uh, in prevention of falls and fractures in the general uh, population. There are very limited randomized clinical trial data in HIV patients. And some supplementation approaches are actually harmful, and I'll show you some data about that. There's really no clear target range uh, of what is uh, beneficial for the outcomes that we're looking at in our population. Um, and then you can't separate the musculoskeletal effects of vitamin D from calcium. So uh, what is the independent effects of vitamin D supplementation only on some of these effects? We really do not know. Uh, additional problems with screening, the assay variability, the uh, diasorin radioimmune assay, which used to be the standards, is extremely variable. Um, and the HPLC assay is more um, precise uh, and better, but there, is still, there are still problems with it. And lastly is assay cost, because you do one screening and then you have to follow up, uh, and it builds up. These tests are between 40 to 50 per assay. So the, the one thing that's really quite troubling for us is that um, the definitions of what are normal vitamin D levels are really just based upon postmenopausal, predominantly Caucasian women. And the vitamin D physiology may be very different in African Americans. And the evidence that suggests that 
are that uh, a very similar study that uh, plotted PTH and 25-OHE in African Americans showed that the inflection point was much lower. It was more in the range of 16 to 20 nanograms per ml, the same way that my colleague did for the uh, postmenopausal women. So physiologically, there may be some differences uh, of vitamin D uh, in African Americans. Um, also, in studies looking at bone density, 25-OHD levels don't correlate with bone density in elderly African-American uh, men as they do in Caucasians. And also, lastly, the most important one is the randomized clinical trial of a decent size done in African-American postmenopausal women showed no improvement in bone density despite increases in 25-OHD. Um, some supplementation uh, regimens are potentially harmful. This was a study that was recently published uh, of 2,200 postmenopausal women who were given an annual dose of 500,000 international units of D3. Um, and you can see on the top line, uh, that's the group that received the vitamin D. They had higher rates of falls and fractures. So a non-physiologic dose of uh, vitamin D may be harmful. Uh, what the higher limits of, uh, of that kind of harm is 50,000 safe, which we commonly give, is $100,000 safe. Those uh, studies are forthcoming as well. So given all the confusion, what do um, our guidelines say? Well, the Institute of Medicine, looking at the general population, suggests that we do not screen for vitamin D, um, and they don't specifically mention HIV in their guidelines. The Endocrine Society, championed by Mike Hollick, uh, suggests that we screen for at-risk patients, and specifically they mention all patients on AIDS medications, but they don't specifically mention which ones. Uh, they also put in, uh, in, the, in their general criteria risk of at-risk patients include African Americans, those with CKD, malabsorption, uh, patients who've had fractures and falls previously. Sorry. Trying to go back. Um, and then the European AIDS Clinical Society um, sort of takes a, a position in between where they mention that certain antiretrovirals, and especially uh, they, they specifically mention efavirenz, uh, patients on efavirenz, you should screen for vitamin D, and they list some of the other at-risk um, uh, populations for screening. Similarly, they have a different approach into what levels you should try to target. Um, and the Institute of Medicine takes the approach that anybody with greater than 20 nanograms per ml uh, should have sufficient uh, vitamin D. And so they recommend a daily allowance uh, or recommend a dose of somewhere between 600 and 800. Uh, the Endocrine Society, uh, which is looking a little bit more at at-risk at patients and, and sort of higher-risk patients and specifically tailoring their guidelines towards them, suggests that we should be targeting a level greater than 30 nanograms per ml, and they take a more aggressive approach to both uh, your daily uh, supplementation, also providing a loading regimen for those who have lower than 20 nanograms per ml. And the European Aid Society um, sort of sides with the greater 20 uh, um, level, but gives a range of doses um, to supplement. So my approach is a little bit different. Um, I really feel like that screening the entire population of HIV patients, we just don't have the data to justify doing that. It 
causes a lot of um, resources and stress, and we end up chasing numbers that don't have a clear uh, outcome. And so I think in patients who have high risk, and that is specifically patients who are osteoporotic, who've had prior fractures, or who have high fall risk, we should get a baseline level, and we should target a supplementation so that we can get their levels above 30 nanograms per ml, because in those patients, they're likely to benefit from that um, treatment as far as their musculoskeletal outcomes are concerned. There should be some age limit, because most of the studies are done in patients over 65, 70 that have shown benefits. So there must be, I think age has to be figured into this. I just don't know what the right age is. When I started uh, with a, a proposal to use uh, 65 or 70 as a cutoff for screening um, for the higher risk, many of my colleagues who are familiar with this literature from the endocrine and the ID side uh, felt like that was being too conservative. So. Over the age of 50, I think we should consider using that as a cutoff for screening, and I think that would be reasonable. And then I think in, in specific circumstances, there may truly be a, a utility for um, vitamin D supplementation in a specific period of time. For instance, we're doing a study now, uh, which is an ACTG study, looking at supplementing with vitamin D with initiation of tenofovir and efavirenz containing regimens just for the first year as a way of mitigating the bone loss that occurs with antiretroviral initiation. So uh, just a, a, um, um, uh, a set amount of time when you're at higher risk to provide that sort of treatment. I think the same kind of uh, study can be done with initiation of tuberculosis treatment, initiation of hep C therapy, and during periods when you really need to mineralize bone well, such as in adolescence. And I think there's a role for um, a more strategic aggressive approach in those populations, but we're still waiting on data to help us define how aggressively to do it, what doses to target, and for how long. And I think some of this data will be coming uh, in the next few years. Everybody else who's not at high risk, uh, I wouldn't check vitamin D levels, but you can recommend general lifestyle uh, improvements knowing that HIV patients are at higher risk of fracture. So these are um, from the National Osteoporosis Guidelines, and they're for older patients greater than 65, but I think they're reasonable for the general population as well. That is, you should have adequate intake of calcium vitamin D from food uh, as much as you can. And the calcium data is really quite rich on this in that uh, the calcium from food is better than from supplements, for sure. Um, and targeting a vitamin D level of between 800 to 1,000 from food, calcium about 1,000 milligrams per day, regular weight-bearing exercise, avoidance of tobacco, and avoidance of excess alcohol. Um, just a glimpse at some kinds of, some foods that have, are rich in vitamin D. Uh, fish has a lot of vitamin D. Uh, all of our milk and orange juice is supplemented, uh, fortified, excuse me, so they provide about 100 international units. So if you take a multivitamin and then eat fish and drink milk, you'll be pretty much there. Okay, so in summary, vitamin D deficiency is highly prevalent in our HIV-infected individuals and in the general population. There are associations with many extraskeletal outcomes in observational studies, but very limited randomized clinical trial data. The benefit is most clear in the general population for prevention of fractures and falls, and I think with HIV it'll be the same. Uh, there are ongoing studies in HIV subgroups that we should support in order to really figure out how to use this properly in our population. I would avoid universal screening and screen only groups at higher risk of fracture. And as I mentioned, the age cutoff is one that is open to debate. Um, and then I would just target treatment for uh, 
by levels in those high-risk patients that you've screened. And in those cases, I would push for the higher limit of 30. But in everybody else, I wouldn't bother checking, and then you don't get into the trouble of uh, targeting a, a level. So with that, I'd like to uh, thank Scott and Elizabeth at Columbia, and then the members of the ACTG Bone Complications Working Group who uh, have helped a lot to crystallize some of these thoughts. Thank you. So th thank you, Mike, for a terrific talk in a confusing area for most of us. Uh, please put your questions on cards. Uh, the first question I'll read is, is there any benefit to checking PTH levels in patients with low vitamin D to decide whether to replete vitamin D, and especially in African-American patients? No, oh, I think that makes sense. When you do have a low level, usually I like to check a PTH to see if physiologically this is uh, meaningful at all. And if the PTH is high and the vitamin D low, that, that helps you decide um, uh, to treat. And also, uh, when you're treating in this particular circumstance, you can also see whether or not both the PTH comes uh, coming down and the, and the vitamin goes up. I'll just ask a question while the card's coming. Just as far as laboratory assays, uh, are, is, is it pretty standard? Are there any, should there be any concern about where the assay is run as far as the vitamin D level. Right. So as I mentioned, the, the radioimmune assay, uh, which the most common one is diasorin, is not really that reliable. And most uh, places like Quest now have converted to the HPLC assay, uh, which you can rely on. Um, and I think most centers will do that. But if you, if you can, try to get the HPLC assay. Okay. I just need some cards in the first wave. Please come up to the microphone if you've got a question. Thank you. Okay. Any gender differences in screening male men versus women? Um, I think for the the way that I've outlined screening, there would be no difference. There, in the general guidelines uh, of screening, they target postmenopausal women over 65 and men over 70. But I think, you know, in that age range, there's no, there, there, it's debatable. And then as far as the other risk factors of being osteoporotic, being at high risk for falls and fractures, uh, there should be no difference between groups. Can serum alkaline phosphatase be used as a surrogate for vitamin D deficiency? And why do so many patients have elevated alkafos? So that's a great question. So serum alkafos is both from the liver and from the bone. Um, but uh, if it goes up temporally, with uh, initiation of, let's say, antiretrovirals, and you have other factors that suggest that the bone is, is, uh, is increasing in, in its um, remodeling, then it's a decent marker for, for bone activity. Why does it go up with uh, antiretrovirals? It seems to go up with a lot of different antiretrovirals, and I think it's, it's a marker of hyperactivity or remodeling of the bone. Why it specifically goes up more with tenofovir, that's an issue that we really don't have a good handle on. Um, can you use it as a, as a marker of response? It's actually a fantastic one to follow for treatment of osteomalacia uh, because it, it should come down. And after you've well mineralized the bone and the alkafos is down to normal, that's when you would really back off on the uh, supplementation. Thank you. Should we be routinely obtaining DEXA scans in young adults on long-term tenofovir without symptoms? 
I don't think uh, we should um, because the risk of fracture really is most highly correlated with age. Uh, so even in younger patients with low DEXAs and even low Z-scores, which are comparing them against their own age and ethnicity, um, it doesn't predict uh, fractures very well. It's only in the older ages, and that's because there are other aspects about aging that changes the material quality of your bone and also your risk for falling. How long does it take to replace return normal levels of vitamin D with supplementation? So you can recheck levels in about six weeks uh, to two months. Um, for the case of osteomalacia that I mentioned before, you're really looking at not just achieving levels that are adequately high in the, in, in the body stores, but also to the bone. And, and then so in that case, you would continue supplementation until some of the other factors, such as a, a decrease in bone-specific alkaline phosphatase, have also decreased. What is the risk of kidney stones with vitamin D supplementation? Thank you. So with very high doses of vitamin D supplementation, there, there is an incident of uh, kidney stones. Um, but in the levels that are being uh, put out in the guidelines of the 2,000 to 4,000 range, and even with 50,000 in a short period, as in eight weeks, there's really no risk of uh, development of kidney stones. Which vitamin D supplement is recommended? So uh, D3 is cholecalciferol, D2 is ergocalciferol. In the older literature, there was a, um, a leaning towards ergocalciferol, but more of the data now suggests that cholecalciferol, or D3, is more potent. And I think most people are favoring that. Would you comment on... Uh, vitamin D deficiency, and cognitive impairment? Uh, no. <laughs> Is that because you That's because I don't, I, don't, no. I don't know very much about that for um, either the, you know, I don't know the studies about that in the general population, nor, nor has it really been looked at in the HIV. What about fish oil supplementation in people who don't eat fish? So cod, cod liver oil, I mean, if you're talking about strictly for HIV, uh, for, uh, sorry, vitamin D levels, cod liver oil has an, an amazing amount of vitamin D, and I think that's, that's reasonable. If you're talking about fish oil for other purposes, um, I think, you know, that's a different discussion. Um, certainly, if, you're, if, you're, if you want to supplement using fish oil instead of uh, pills for vitamin D, that's a, um, it's a great idea for vitamin D purposes. Would you check vitamin D levels in patients with nonspecific aches and pains? <laughs> That's tough. Um, I think what made the case that I present you reasonable is sort of the temporality and the, and the constellations of symptoms. If you're getting, um, if you don't really have tenderness uh, at the bony site, then it's probably not osteomalacia. If you don't get some of that uh, weakness as well, uh, it's also sort of an early osteomalacia or not osteomalacia. So I, I don't check every ache and pain, but um, I do do it when, I, when certain things align. So two last quick questions, and then we'll break for lunch. Any comment on supplemental calcium and risk of heart disease? So that's a great question. Um, there have been uh, observational studies. This one, there was one recently published by uh, Mark Boland, which looked at, uh, I think it's the WHI data, and calcium with um, supplements were associated with a higher rate of, of cardiovascular disease. 
their uh, take on this and a take on a lot of the endocrinologists is that supplements are, uh, are different than what you get from food. And uh, that particular cardiovascular um, problem with calcification of the vasculature is probably not going to be a big problem for our younger HIV patients. But in the general community, they are recommending for postmenopausal women who are getting calcium supplementation to try to get as much of it from food uh, as possible instead of relying purely on calcium supplementation. I think the same thing can be said for the general population and our HIV-infected population. And the final question, is hepatitis C chronic infection before hepatic failure associated with low vitamin D levels? I don't think there's clear data on that. Um, I don't think that the, um, the issues with enzymatic uh, metabolism, vitamin D, are that affected by chronic HCV. And um, I don't think there's good data to, to say that the, the metabolism is any different. But the interesting data is whether or not supplementation, even in those who don't have vitamin D deficiency, is going to be helpful for virologic response, as was done in those two clinical trials. Okay, thank you. If your question was not asked, please come up uh, and ask Mike directly. I'd like to thank Mike. This is a lunch.